Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, for weekly bonus episodes and so much more. This past week, we are talking about our reactions to the Grammy Awards that happened on Sunday. It was a heated episode, I gotta say. Really good episode. At patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And My Queer Pop Party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is having its next two installments First on February 17th for Queer Valentine's Day at Los Globos in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And then our next Brooklyn party will be on March 9th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. Links for tickets for both of those parties will be in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so... As nobody who's listening to this probably needs to hear, Megan the Stallion and Nicki Minaj have been engaged in an on-record beef that has spilled onto the internet and spilled into the various stan armies that exist on the internet. This is a topic we have covered on this show before, but I am very fascinated by the way that stan armies are operating in the pop music ecosystem why they have formed, how they operate, and what they speak to more broadly in our both pop culture and our culture more universally. So I invited Rolling Stone's Moncaper Conte onto the show to talk to me about this beef and the way that it is reflecting elements of our Stan culture back to us. What the Stan armies have done in this particular beef and also like what Stan armies in general and what standing is doing to our popular music ecosystem. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Moncaper. Okay, so I am here with staff writer at Rolling Stone, Manco Percante. Manco Per, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. As I was mentioning to you, I'm a big fan. So we're here today to talk about, well, a little bit about the drama that's unfolded recently that I'm sure everybody that's listening to the show is aware of between Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj. But really, I only want to use that as a jumping off point to talk about one of my personal fascinations and a topic I weirdly feel like despite how prevalent it is in our discourse and our online lives and in pop stardom in general these days, I feel like somehow doesn't get unpacked nearly enough in like our critical discourse as much as I would like it to be, which is standing and the idea of stands and the idea of the role stands are playing in the pop star ecosystem for, I guess, sometimes good, but largely for worse, I think, in many instances and in a way that I think has like corrupted some of the ways that we like interact with pop stars, absorb their music, absorb their celebrity, the way we exist on the internet. And I guess, you know, I want to use maybe what's gone on with Megan and Nikki here less to sort of like dissect, you know, who's right and who's wrong in that particular situation and more to sort of like open up a window into the current state of the standing ecosystem and how that's like impacted pop music and pop stardom. So you wrote a little bit about the beef that happened. So maybe we can just start there. Can you just explain for anybody that's like living under a rock or whatever, what happened over the last, let's say, week or two between Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj? Sure. So it's funny because like, right, things have kind 
kind of like hit a climax with Megan releasing this amazing song on its own, like completely outside of the context we're about to lay out. Like I think Megan's latest single, His, is just like an incredible showcase of why people fell in love with her 2017, 2018 as a rapper anyway. But that is like the pinnacle in these like long simmering tensions between Nicki Minaj and Megan that I guess we could say started sometime after they collaborated with each other. So as a lot of people probably remember, Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion had a song together called Hot Girl Summer. Hot girl summer, so you know she hey, got yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Who had a B? Who got a lot of D? Who popping like a P when he be hopping out the V? Megan really like started her superstardom ascent in the summer of 2019. That was capped with the song named after the slogan that had really taken the commercial world, the popular world by storm that season. So they were cool. They were on live and the live comes a little bit important in like a few minutes, but they went on two lives together. First one before the song, they were in their respective places, loving on each other. And then another live took place on the video set for Hot Girl Summer. They are very into each other at this point. A few things happen over time. Some people think that this might have something to do with Megan one year later releasing a song with Cardi B, who we know is an arch nemesis of Nicki Minaj. And then moving forward from there, they unfollow each other even though at the time they're both like, this has nothing to do with WAP coming out. They unfollow each other at some point. And then Nikki starts unloading these like coded mm. shots. The most direct they had been up until this point were Nikki's comments on a rendition of Queen Radio, which is this Apple Music podcast thing that she does every now and then where she alludes to, she's also beefing with a lot of people at this point. There are a lot right. of unnamed targets. She's released the remix to Super Freaky Girl with like Bia and JT and a couple other uh, the rap girls. Girls, but she's targeting others. And while she's doing that on this edition of Queen Radio, this is like September 2022. She's like, yeah. And then there's this opportunist who tried to coerce me to drink while I was either pregnant or trying to get pregnant. And I was saying I might have been pregnant. And so then this all pointed to Megan the Stallion and the live from when they were recording the video for Hot Girl Summer. And if you go back to those lives, which I did, Megan is like trying to encourage Nikki to drive the boat, which is her thing about drinking Henny from the bottle from her before she was like a douce girl. Nikki is saying no, but Nikki is also drinking a mixed Moscato at the time, which I think mm. we should also mm. point out. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but Nikki basically spins this narrative on Queen Radio a couple years ago at this point that Megan was trying to coerce her into drinking and then made a joke that if she was with child that she could just go to the clinic. Megan immediately, this is brought to her attention on Twitter, Megan immediately is like, this is a lie. So now we fast forward to Red Ruby the Sleeves. There are coded shots at Megan in that song. That's a huge song of Nikki's. Nikki is saying, I haven't, haven't fucked with horses since Christopher Reeves, which is not super innovative of a diss. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me as a diss. 700 on the horses when we fixing the leaves, but I don't fuck with horses since Christopher Reeves. And you actually did fuck with horses in 2019. You called her the stallion and you loved on her so i don't know right <laughs> uh, but this is I, this is like a lot of context but this is like basically how we get here megan has not at any point said anything about nikki publicly that i can recall mm. so we're, mm. we're between 2019 to 2024 now there's not yes. much record of megan having like addressed nikki too much but we have a, a few bars from nikki and red ruby the sleaze 
And then we get to Hiss. Right. So, Hiss is a follow-up to Cobra, which is one of Megan's comeback singles. Didn't catch on, I think, as popularly as Hiss. And I think for good reason. I don't think it's as good of a song. But Hiss right. drops. It's her first release, her first solo release of the year. And there's a bar in the song where she says, these hoes don't be mad at Megan. These hoes mad at Megan's Law. These hoes don't be mad at Megan. These hoes mad at Megan's Law. I don't really know what the problem is, but I guarantee y'all want me to start. And that is buried in a series of disses to a series of targets. Like this is not a song about Nicki Minaj. That is potentially a bar about Nicki Minaj, but this is not a song about Nicki Minaj by any means. However, Nicki then takes this opportunity to spend five days unleashing all these critiques of Megan much more directly than she ever has. Three days into this rampage, she releases her own diss track called Bigfoot. Both songs do pretty well streaming sales wise. Bigfoot is not as good of a song on the merits of songwriting as is. However, we have now landed at a place where the Billboard charts following the release of both of these songs are out. His is number one on the Hot 100 and Bigfoot sits at 23. And just to clarify, the Megan's Law bar is a reference to the fact that Nikki is, this is just fact entered in the record that is married to a convicted sex offender. And Megan's Law requires convicted sex offenders to register with the state and provides parents with other concerned members of the community with information on the, of their whereabouts. So I think that basically part of the controversy was that when Nikki's husband moved to California when they got married, he didn't register as a sex offender and he got brought in or arrested for that and like put on house arrest for a period of time for not for violating that law basically right there were legal ramifications for that and yes so that is why nikki you know says like this is the reason i'm going so hard because i had she nikki says that she had asked she had put out a general statement if you want to criticize me that's fine please do not criticize my family because ever since nikki married her husband kenneth petty who was like a high school sweetheart of sorts someone she's known for a long time after he was convicted of a sexual assault when he was a teenager against another teenager, she's faced a lot of heat for that choice. Even within her Mm. fan base, there was a lot of criticism Mm. for that choice. Like people were like Mm. photoshopping him out of photos. Mm. And then I think it didn't help that it wasn't just left at that. Like Nikki is is kind of taking the position like my husband, you know, this is, she calls it tea and it's not tea, it's sexual assault. But she was like, this is 30 year old tea. He was a child. And it's like, he was a child. However, there are also reports that you and your associates have taken to harass this victim and trying to get her to recant and have also maligned her as like her race, her mm. story on, on other editions of Queen Radio as well. So huh. it's not just like my husband made a poor choice when he was a kid. It's like right. you as an adult choosing to associate yourself with him and marry him, start a family with him and then malign his victim. Right. All right. So that's the basic contours of this beef. It has consumed the internet or or it did I guess maybe for about a week really most importantly like it felt like everybody was talking about it there's a lot of obviously other undercurrents here which is Nikki for a long long time was the sole female rapper that had ascended to a certain echelon of success and you know I think it's important context also to lay out just to give her some benefit of the doubt which is that you know it has historically been very difficult for female rappers to get to the level of acclaim and commercial success that Nikki 
Minaj reached, she definitely broke through in a moment where there were basically no female rappers that were achieving like mass commercial success. It had been like a real drought since the kind of heyday of Little Kim and Missy Elliott and Foxy Brown, et cetera, et cetera. And in the wake of Nicki's success, there has been a cavalcade of successful women in rap that have certainly had doors opened for them by Nicki's success. That's true. However, on the flip side of that, I think there's been an energy amongst the music consuming community and amongst like the rap world that Nikki has been less than welcoming to some of her progeny in this space or has only been selectively welcoming to people within the space. So there's a lot of tension brewing and this is where I kind of want to go with the conversation like amongst the fans and stands of these artists which is like not just rap specific obviously this is much more broader pop thing but all of these artists exist in sort of bubbles created by their artists supporters like largely on the internet their stands so I'm curious like in thinking about this rap beef because one thing I was noticing is like you can literally enter into these stand bubbles and like as you were sort of off micing with me just now like experience entirely different ecosystems in terms of how all of this is being received like on my timeline it was like dunking on Nikki through the whole thing like basically you would think that there was like a universal condemnation of her behavior and chiding and laughing about like sort of the ferocity that she was coming at Megan that felt a little bit unhinged to people and that like the song sucked. Like that was the vibe that I was getting on my timeline. But then I would kind of go into her tweets and like look under her tweets at like the responses. And of course, as goes without saying, Nikki's stands the barbs are like a foundational stan army like you know obviously there have been fan armies throughout pop history from the lambs etc etc but really like the calcification of the internet stan army i think really begins in nikki's era with the barbs and the little monsters and the believers like there's this whole era in the late aughts and early 2010s when like you know pop stardom is becoming much more of an internet-based fascination and these groups are coming together you know and as we talked about in a previous episode of the show sometimes for good like there was an energy initially around some of these stand armies I feel like where it was like you know groups of marginalized people who like never would have found each other before like finding community with each other like you know the little monsters obviously is very like LGBTQ plus focused and like it was a way for people of different gender and sexuality identities who were like coalescing around Lady Gaga's message to like connect with each other and find community and that was like kind of a good aspect of it but of course there's this other part of it where it's like a go to war die on the sword for your family no matter what happens and like your willingness to kind of like go to the ends of the earth for that pursuit and like where your kind of identity in some ways I think gets like wrapped around the axle of this person like you don't exist as an individual you only exist as like an extension of the person that you're standing which is like something that's always really like troubled me and I think one of the ways that I sort of see that reflected is the stand armies in some ways can reflect the energy of the person that they're standing so like if the person at the top is like a softer figure someone that maybe isn't as actively engaged with them directly like I don't know Ariana Grande maybe like somebody that's just like you know not exactly like a combative personality the Stan army of course is always going to like ferociously defend the person if they feel like they're slighted but there's definitely fear that 
kind of is cultivated around the barbs, I think, in particular, and sometimes around even, you know, a few other of the groups too, but the barbs in particular, because Nikki herself is very directly in communication with them all the time and also is herself a pretty, like, ferocious presence. Somebody that is willing to go out there and say what she thinks and is willing to come directly at other major pop stars when she feels like it's warranted. And, you know, we can debate whether we feel like it's warranted, but let's just give her the benefit of the doubt again and say that she feels like that. So I guess my question with all of that context is how has the stan ecosystem reacted to the megan and nikki conflict like what have you seen and like what is the role that the stands have played here in this beef i think you hit it like on the head when you were like you can live in these different bubbles and see completely different reactions and you sometimes have to especially like if you work in the music space as a critic or a journalist you have to go looking for the base that might be outside of the internet ecosystem you have naturally built around you so it's like for example we had known that nikki's fans dox people we've seen this Right. over the years. It's like going right. back to when another critic named Juana, who just made a criticism about the level of maturity in Nikki's raps, yes. she was doxxed. Her young daughter was threatened. You know, there were New York Times articles about what this other, this person who is trying to work in the music space went through for, you know, having dared spoken somewhat critically about Nicki Minaj. And so even like around that time of like, I think when I was bringing up like that Queen Radio episode in like September 2022-ish, another cultural commentator was docs was being threatened with bodily harm and you can see nikki like not liking the tweets with the girl's address but like liking right. tweets that say like you know she's getting what she deserves or i don't see any threats but you know if you talk about the queen like shit happens and so mm. nikki is directly engaging with the more like threatening menacing behaviors of her stand base mm. and in this particular case the cemetery where megan the stallion's mother is buried it was reported by local news outlets that they needed to up their security and alert the local police force that they might be under particular risk based on the fact that that was the particular cemetery where Megan's mom was buried becoming public knowledge. And it's like, wow. you know, the, the veracity of those tweets, we can't like, you know, I cannot like say for a fact she was this information was spread but like the, the cemetery themselves took it upon themselves to prepare themselves for a potential threat you know what i mean so i think that's like the worst of it one of my really good friends and another cultural journalist moises mendez actually has done like a lot of reporting around this particular instance of stand conflict and he told me this incredible story based on his reporting of a critic of Nicki minaj's who is a content creator who has named eric who is like made different videos over time being critical of Minaj and has like had a target on his back for a while because of that from the barbs getting docs like his brother called him and said that there was a pizza sent to his brother's home in Eric's name so somehow they got Whoa. the brother's address and he started wow. getting a bunch of phone calls he didn't answer any of them according to Moises but he was getting inundated with calls to his cell phone was able to trace the doxing back to a particular barb and was able to find that barb's information and say hey you got 24 hours to take my information down take down your account and publish publicly apologize for the way that you're treating me, or I might have to pursue other avenues of justice. And this person initially was like, well, I didn't dox you first, <laughs> according to Moises, as if that mattered. <laughs> I was the third person that doxed you, so I'm so, basically skating here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Take it up with them. But eventually this person did apologize. They, I listened to a bit of a Twitter space where, you know, they were like, Barb's, we're doing a lot. And that's what, yes. I think that is the essence of what has happened since Megan yes. released this, <laughs> since Nikki responded and also released a diss track of her own. It's just like, folks, doing 
a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, what I wanted to ask you is, I think that one of these toxic elements that, like, I do, like, there's, listen, there's parts of stan culture that I feel like the pop stars themselves are kind of, like, not in control of and are a function of the way we exist online and, like, would be happening in some ways whether the pop star, like, wanted stands or didn't want stands or cultivated and spoke to their fans in that way or didn't. Like, this coalescing, this online sort of community that we build around pop stars, like, it's just a function of the way that we exist on the internet in some ways. However, I think one of the scary parts of stan culture and the scary parts of, you know, the way that, like, some of these pop stars can rile their stands up directly in the way that Nikki does more so than I think some other pop stars do is that it's really easy to be a certain person from behind your computer screen. And I think like that's, you know, a really fascinating aspect of all of this is that, and I know this, I mean, look, like there's things that sometimes I find that I will say on my podcast that like, you know, if I walked up to an artist and and saw them in their face, I don't know that I would necessarily be so brave to say those criticisms of their music or whatever. But it's just easy to to be tough and to sort of like be threatening in some for some people like from behind a screen especially when you feel like the person that you've devoted your life and identity to is encouraging that in whatever way and then you know one of the more interesting parts about this to me is that there's a lot of stories as Moises was pointing out and that have been pointed out by other reporters that once they get called out or like once somebody's like okay I called the cops I reported you to the FBI because you literally leaked my mother's home address or whatever crying freaking out, you know, and I, you know, not to say that I feel badly for somebody that doxed a journalist or doxed just a regular person on the internet. That is where I think there is a responsibility on the part of these superstars, because at the end of the day, Nicki Minaj isn't going to get interrogated by the FBI if one of her stands doxes somebody. But that person, Joe Schmo, poor kid who's like devoted their life to standing Nicki Minaj and like lives in their parents' basement or whatever, Mm -hmm. is going to get in trouble for that and I think that the artists seem like they do bear some responsibility for that so I guess my question for you is is Nikki's riling up or subtly sort of provoking her stands unique to her how is that relationship similar to or different from other pop stars relationships to their stands yeah it's interesting to think about because I think it's also like it is a double-edged sword for the artist like Nikki herself has said that she's had her home swatted and you know she believes that this is like an attack that's coming from critics or whether it be in the industry or whether it be in fandoms and so it's like when there is a spirit of animosity cultivated around Mm. you everyone can get bit you know what I mean but I mean as far as like thinking about like the artist's responsibility and like the history or like precedent for this kind of behavior. I mean, I think as much as I think that Donald Glover's swarm should have been about the barbs mm. instead of yeah. about the beehive. Like I think yeah. <laughs> I think that like the beehive is an important precedent in my world. Like as someone who's focused particularly on black music is yes. an important precedent to look at. Yes. And I think also it speaks to what you said about I think that the stand basis do take on the characteristics of their icon and that Beyonce is pretty demure she doesn't really say very much about anything very often unless it's in like a blockbuster film or in her music (laughs) she doesn't particularly engage with fandoms around her as a person she's like my fans it's very my fans my music thank you for my music connecting with you she's she'll speak on that when she does speak on her relationship with like her fan base like if you think about like a film like renaissance where the fans are so much a part of that film you know like seeing people in the audience respond to her and her music but there was a time where they were like really vicious like one of my favorite writers 
because Rachel Kaziganza wrote an essay for NPR in 2014 about the beehive. And she describes how within just a couple of days, she had identified a, mem- a self-proclaimed member of the beehive who, before she had reached out to her, she had noticed was trying to get a Best Buy employee fired because the employee <laughs> gave her a free download of the album. And she was like, how is Beyonce ever going to top the charts if you're giving out these things for free? And so it oh, went right. from, yeah, it went from that, according to Ganza, to the person agree. Also, she noticed that the person was making fun of Rihanna for being a victim of domestic violence, was mocking Mm. Taylor Swift's body, was dissing people who are fans of Tamar Braxton, because apparently that all mattered at the time in the scope of the Beehive's fandom of Beyonce. And so when this writer reached out to this person and said, I would love to talk to you for this piece I'm writing about the Beehive, the person got so paranoid that they themselves doxed the writer and tagged the Beehive in a tweet saying like, y'all come get her, you know? So it's like Nikki Stan Army are not the first to act completely wild. And it's like, I think I used to think a lot more about the responsibility of the artist. But quite frankly, we are not moving superstars outside of the confines of capitalism. We're just not. So it's Mm. like, if it doesn't affect their bottom line, they have no reason to change their behavior. And so I think that Mm. like, yes, like, you know, the least that someone who has a particularly violent, whether it be rhetorically or physically stand base can do is say like, I don't condone that. And Nikki has said that she's done that. Like even when very recently she was on a Twitter space with Joe Budden, who is another popular podcast host and is a a self-proclaimed Barb. So that was a safe space for her. And that's where she made these like really gruesome comments about how Megan wanted a Rihanna moment in being interviewed by Gail King, akin to Rihanna's interview on ABC after being assaulted by Chris Brown in 2009. And that it's like a sympathy play and it's sympathy that she doesn't deserve is essentially what Nikki is saying in this Twitter space. She's also then asked by a friend of Joe Budden, like, well, can you at least clarify that you didn't send the barbs to Megan's mother's gravesite? And Nikki didn't even let the person get the question out. And she was like, that's disgusting. That's a lie. That's right. media fodder. And she doesn't say directly, I have not done that. She's just as like, this is a lie and that's crazy. But yeah. I don't even know that people are saying Nikki said do it. I think Nikki has cultivated an environment around her and within her fan base that is very extreme and that those mm. extreme behaviors have not been loudly and publicly critiqued. I'm sure she has mm. at one point or another been like, don't do nothing crazy in my name. I feel like I've read that before. But yes. I think if you have a stand base like Nikki's, you need to say that all the time. Like Megan, you sure. know, she was just celebrating his and she was like, his is number one. Let's stay positive. I don't yes. know if Nikki at any point in the five day internet tirade said like let's stay positive you know right or let's keep this about the music let's like let the rap beef play out rap beef is a tale as old as hip-hop and we'll just kind of have our fun in our music and like kind of keep it there and like let's keep people's mother's graves out of the situation but it's also difficult for her to give that advice when you're putting people's mother's graves and the nature of them being deceased all up in the song You know, exactly. You, you, I was gonna you really say, really blurred yeah. the lines, you know. Yes. Yeah. 
2024 has been an absolutely bonkers year for pop music. It feels like every single girly in the universe, and fine, even some men, has dropped a new record. It's been a lot to process. Thank God our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, has got you covered. Every single week, we drop a bonus episode of this show, going long on everything from Taylor's The Tortured Poets Department to Beyonce's Cowboy Carter, Dua Lipa's Radical Optimism, Casey Musgrave's Deeper Well, Ariana Grande's Eternal Sunshine, Billie Eilish's Hit Me Hard and Soft, Charlie XCX's Brat, and all the other big albums from this year, and all with a coterie of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. When we're not talking new albums, we're digging through new singles on our new music speed rounds, deep diving on classic albums, recapping all the big tours, and so much more. All that, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and tons of other great perks. So sign up at the icon tier now by going to patreon.com slash poppantheon, or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also now subscribe for the audio only directly in the Apple Podcasts app. I also am really fascinated by two things. One of which is that in thinking about the way that the armies reflect their queens or their kings or whatever, you know, Nikki has also, as you were alluding to, cultivated a persona, especially in the latter half of her career, of being embattled. Like her entire persona is centered around the idea that she's under attack. She calls herself the bad guy. She's constantly alluding to the fact that the music industry is out to get her, which again, there's probably some truth to. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that we should say that, like, God knows, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like, Nikki's unlikely ascent to the top of pop stardom as a female rapper was, like, truly a feat that, like, should be celebrated and probably was something she had to fight tooth and nail for. Absolutely. And I'm sure that there are tons of sexist and racist forces in the music industry that are probably trying to replace her. You know, there's still probably a mentality out there of there can only be one. There's, you know, there's some of it is probably based in reality. However, Nikki has turned that into an entire culture like there's an entire music aesthetic and personality culture around Nikki of being in battle like in some ways I've said this before but she does remind me a little bit of the ex-president of the United States Donald Trump in the sense that like their identity is centered around the idea that they're constantly under attack that everyone's out to get them aggrievement is the word that comes to mind a lot Mm -hmm. and then as a result of that aggrievement perhaps because lots of people feel aggrieved and marginalized and attacked and like they can't get up in the world that really speaks to something core inside of a lot of people that then allows them to sort of like manifest their own feelings of aggrievement or to sort of like channel their own feelings of aggrievement and anger like through the battles of these like wealthy celebrities and it's you know a really interesting thing that I think like again is not not akin to the way that our politics functions today yeah and I think that like it being Nikki also really complicates things like she complicates things herself and then her own legacy and like history and career also complicates things because Nikki will be the first to be like as a black woman woman, et cetera, et cetera. Like in that space that I was just mentioning with Joe Budden, she was just like, you know, I've gone through a whole bunch of shit, but because I don't publicly cry, I am not granted sympathy essentially is kind of, this is a huge paraphrase, but she was just like, if you're a black woman and you don't make yourself small is really what she's right. saying. You don't make yourself right. small. You don't make yourself a victim. Then you're not given right. any credit or benefit of the doubt. I never get on the internet and cry. So isn't it amazing that black women have to cry. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Black men have to wear a dress, according to Cat. Black women have to cry. You better not be a black woman 
and show resilience. And it's funny because Megan also like having survived a shooting and a very public trial against the perpetrator. Like, you know, I wrote her Rolling Stone cover story and, you know, she was just like, I don't understand what it is. And she ended up translating this into a song on her album Traumazine, where she's like, I don't know if it's because I'm tall as a black woman. It's because I am a black woman, because I'm loud, because I'm boisterous, because I'm sexual. I am not being my my victimhood is actually not even being taken seriously. So Nikki Mm. is kind of saying, like, if you don't try to make yourself smaller, you won't be taken seriously. And Megan is just Mm. like, I'm kind of like, I'm just not taking serious. I'm I'm telling you I'm hurt and I'm also not being taken seriously. So it's like, it's really complicated when you think about like power structures, not just in the music industry, but like socio politically, Mm. it's hard. And it's also hard because Nikki will be like, you know, I fought tooth and nail to get here. I never got the credit I deserved. And Nikki did change a lot of things. Like the fact that like women in rap can be feminine and girly and like be taken seriously and not associated with a crew of men for real can be like taken. Yeah. in like superstars in their own right like that a lot of yes. that is like nikki laid the foundation for that yes and to not be confined aesthetically i mean i think nikki endured a lot of criticism for her uh, diffuse artistic approach mm-hmm. to making music early in her career like where she would on the one hand be making kind of traditional hard rap songs and then also make starships and super bass and you know records that were obvious pop plays right. and i remember the feeling you know around her at that time being very much like she's selling out blah 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 but Mm -hmm. really those moves were pretty ingenious Mm -hmm. commercially speaking and in terms of opening doors for women in rap to be taken seriously as pop stars I mean like that's you know we're now in an era where like we don't really delineate between like Megan Thee Stallion being a rapper and a pop star like she's obviously both Cardi B is obviously both like Sweetie and Doja Cat are obviously both like Mm -hmm. and I believe very very wholeheartedly that Nikki's risk taking forays into Mm -hmm. sort of not being confined to sort of like allow herself to be both the hard respectable like you know traditional hip-hop values rapper and Mm -hmm. also to allow herself to like participate in red one red one rig dance pop songs is a large part of the reason why a doja cat can be all of these things at one time and all of these women have also said this very plainly doja has said like that's the thing he has said it plainly like lotto all these people like especially when you think about the case of lotto and megan as two women who came up saying Nicki minaj is one of the forces that shaped my identity as a rapper lotto much more loudly and then that that relationship turning so adversarial. It's such an interesting phenomenon. And I think it it brings me to another thing that I think is interesting about Nikki and complicated about Nikki. She has this, I think that she wouldn't call it a victim's mindset. She would call it like a mindset of like resiliency in the face of obstacles, right? She has this, like there, no one is giving me the credit. They're always trying to bring me down. I'm not getting the things that I'm owed. But then she will tout these crazy streaming numbers, these crazy, how quickly her tour is selling out, how much her fans want her album, how many number ones she's gotten you know right. or how much how much billboard play she's gotten so it's like yeah. is it uchi wally or is it one mic is like part of how i feel but i also understand that like that is part of like the complications of black 
womanhood in mm. in celebrity you know mm. you can have all this access to so many right. privileges and so many material things and so right. much status and you can also be being diminished in other ways right and that brings us to literally the grammys the other night where like for the umpteenth time one of the most important black women who released one of the greatest albums of you know recent times gets once again blanked by the de rigueur more raucous oriented obviously white avatar for <laughs> you know pop success so that's been like a tale as old as time at the top of the grammys you mm -hmm. know we were just talking about on our patreon episode that like it's still been 25 years since a black woman has won album of the year at the grammy awards like mm -hmm. it's this way it's like where on the one hand beyonce is most evidently like one of the most successful pop stars of all time and at the same time like still feels like there's certain institutional parts of the music industry that like refuse to act in kind in that way and that's i think the narrative that like a lot of the barbs have taken up and that i've seen right in my online right. travels it's like there's a machine against nikki like the, right. like like nikki was saying like rock nation is like like rock nation you will crumble like like rock nation is like trying to take her down like and she right. but, but like the evidence she was using was like that there were paid ads on Twitter for his and it's like most yes. marketing campaigns probably enlist paid ads you know that they're paid ads you know it's hard and it becomes very hard to decipher what is true disparity and injustice and what is just like other people being more popular than you yes a hundred percent and I think another point that you made earlier that I really just wanted to highlight is pop stardom is at its core a weird intersection between artistic expression and ultra capitalism and commercialism so there's this weird ecosystem here between artist and fan slash stan where it's like now you know as you mentioned these fans and stands are critical arms of commercial advertisement and of chart gaming and streaming and sales and all these things like it's become I think part of like music industry strategizing as like how do you utilize these armies of people that are obsessed with these artists to like drive their commercial success and like that makes the relationship so complex you know I've talked a lot about on this show the sort of like weird pit I get in my stomach when I look at the way that Taylor Swift interacts with the Swifties in the sense that like she's kind of a genius in the sense of the way that she is able to cultivate this idea that like her stands are her friends like that they like she will say stuff like I went to the Eras tour and she'll say stuff like we've been through so much together like you've been with me this whole time and it's so strange like this is the way that maybe you would talk to your best friend like I mm -hmm. would turn to my best friend and say you know we've been through so much together <laughs> And at the same time, like these people, she doesn't know any of these people personally, really. Mm -hmm. Like these people are there to essentially like buy her products mm -hmm. and to support her. And again, it's not as if there isn't an artistic exchange. I think, you know, Taylor Swift and Nicki Minaj and all these people like give a lot of themselves in their mm -hmm. work. And that's part of what the exchange is. They expose themselves and their art and they inspire and they touch us. And then in exchange, we give them money. Mm -hmm. But like there is something also a little bit icky to me about that sort of like exploitation of that relationship by way of the pop star of sort of being like and Nikki does this too like she talks to her fans like I'm your mommy like I'm the den mother like there's this real feeling of like you know we're like a family and mm -hmm. at the same time it's kind of twisted through the like warped prism of capitalism like it's not pure this is not your real mommy this is not the pure love of a mother to children this is the love between you know a group of people that like do share some sort of identity and like you know some sort of 
resonance with each other, but at the same time, like one group of people is like paying tithe to this one person at the top at the same time. And also are getting something from it themselves. Like this reminds me so much of a story that SZA told me when I was writing her cover for the Grammy edition of Rolling Stone last fall. And you know, SZA like has this kind of relationship with her fans as well. Like she's she's told me like, I really do see these people as like a part of me as like my family because I remember Mm. what it was like to feel small Mm. and want to be seen Mm. and to feel like I had something Mm. to offer the world that no one was taking. So whenever I can, I do want the people who have invested in me and my music and see themselves in me to also experience me seeing them back. And she said, Mm. like, I've even invited fans like to my house to like the surprise of myself and other people in the room. And she was like, you know, luckily, like that's normally went smoothly. But she told me a story about a photographer who reached out to her in a DM. I love your work. And it's a small time photographer, someone who hasn't had a big breakthrough. SZA happened to be where they were, agreed to do a shoot. And then according to her, this person completely exploited her. It was a shoot that was Mm. very vulnerable and a lot more naked Mm. than things that she had done before. But she was like, okay. She told the person to hold on to the photos. The person then came around and was like, if you don't let me share these, or if you don't share these, like, I'm just going to do it myself. Ended Mm -hmm. up trying to get money because like, you know, there's a lot of copyright issues with photography. Posted the photos without her consent, according to her. And that's like an example of how like these exchanges are not one-sided. Like these fans, Mm. like they are also trying to get something, whether it is a sense of community, whether it is a sense right. of identity, whether it's just proximity right. to celebrity right. is something that I think right. is a huge force within and without and outside of the industry, just like wanting to be close to yes. people. Like I, I thought about another piece of journalism, well, like TikTok journalism by Taylor Lorenz, who of course is like a popular internet culture writer. And I saw this TikTok that she made on her page where she's doing a lot of her own sort of like journalistic work through like reels and TikTok. And she was like, towards the end of the year last year, there was like a bit of a crisis happening, particularly amongst like young people, if I recall, with year end recap reels and TikToks. Mm, and she was like, mm. people are trying to glamorize their lives through these things. And people feel like, well, if I don't have enough footage of my year, like, can I glamorize my own life? Was my year worth having mm. lived? Essentially, it's like mm. it becomes this existential crisis. And I think that speaks to fandoms because you then, especially if you are a stan, you kind of get to inhabit some of the glamour that this obvious celebrity right. has. Like you get to, when you make a a Barb account and you have a picture of Nikki as your icon, people are coming to you for tea and updates. Like you're getting to live out a little Mm. bit of this person's very glamorous life. And if they interact with you, if they retweet you, if they follow you, like you're getting a direct hit and interaction with an incredibly famous person that you feel a kinship with. Yeah. And it's like people will put in their bios, like Nikki retweeted this day, Nikki followed this day, you know, you know, and it's like, or, or, or anybody. And it's not exclusive to Nikki at all I think it like and that's why to me it's like the question of like who bears responsibility is an interesting and necessary one to ask of the artist but it's a more important one to ask of the stands because when you but it seems like from Moises's reporting right when a stand is asked to take accountability for misbehavior they might do it because they have they get to see it's not this icon that they're face to face with it's another human being being like this is how the thing that you're doing is affecting yes like they're not seeing the icons as human beings you know Right, 100%. And, you know, I think the other thing that's, like, always rattling around my mind as you're speaking in general when I think about this whole ecosystem is, like, what is the vacuum that this is filling for people or that's like, this is tapping into in human nature? Like, why is this so attractive? Like, what is it about where we 
are as a culture and like what our culture is offering people and what our like body politic is offering people, et cetera, that is like creating the circumstances for this to be the organizing principle. And, you know, to me, the thing that I constantly think about is like, again, and I'm, you know, this is, I'm no proponent of organized religion, but there is a feeling of this that almost feels like it fills the vacuum that like might have been occupied by strict adherence to organized religion and other parts of cultural history. Like this gives people an organizing way to live their life. There's a deity at the top of it. You're willing to go to great lengths in defense of that ideology, in defense of that person. Like there's a feeling that I think people very deeply in their core want to feel belonging. They want to feel some sort of order in their lives. They want to feel community. And like in many instances in human history, you know, we were organized in that way by religion and we were brought together physically by religion, whether that's like in a church or in a synagogue or in a, you know, mosque, whatever it is. And like we have, I think like through our internet lives and like through obviously like for many good reasons, the like disillusionment with organized religion in our society have moved away from those things. And in some ways I do think for some people and especially for a lot of marginalized people, for a lot of queer people, for a lot of people of color, like young people who are, you know, dealing with mental health issues, whatever it is, this is filling that void for you. Like you are able to congregate, you are able to like have something to organize your life around. That's one question that I'm constantly asking myself, like what is the sort of like baser part of human nature that this is allowing people to express in just like, this is the way it's happening just in our contemporary ecosystem. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think as someone who didn't grow up thinking about religion a ton, but I did think about like politics a lot growing up. My parents watch CNN yes. every night. So I think about like our right. sociopolitical organization a lot. So I agree with what yeah. you're saying. I think that's the same reason why we see like astrology, right? Like right. having great exactly. gaining such a huge following exactly. because it gives, exactly. it gives people like a cosmic like ordering yes. and community yes. and principle right. like to organize their life through. My, right. Myself included. I love astrology, you know? Same. And the world I think feels particularly chaotic right now. I mean, I think mm -hmm. there is an overarching feeling of like, you know, climate change and our political climate and all of these things like the world, the, the, the pandemic that we all just went through. Like there is a general feeling of chaos that I think like maybe in some ways like drives people towards these communities. Yeah. And I, and I think like I think that to me, the thing at the base of it is like capitalism, with, which is intrinsically tied to like racism and like in, and there is like racial yes. capitalism at like the right. foundation. I think of like our individualism, you know, like America is mm -hmm. a very individualistic society. And as like the capitalist like leader of the world that has spread to like all corners yes. of the earth. And it's like the Internet allows us to consume by ourselves. But we do also have like an intrinsic need for others. So it's exactly. like, you know, I can commune around this artist from the comfort of my office, you yes. know, that in and of itself, like communing online, obviously, has not always been as tricky of a thing. Like I think I grew up as a journalist writing for OK Player and OK Player yeah. before it was a news publication. It was message boards where a lot mm. of like people who establish careers on like Twitter or um, like a lot of like the black internet media elite people who came to be at like the top of their field coalesced on this message board. And but it, I don't know that it was so much like let's all talk about this one person. And it was more so right. let's talk about like hip hop culture. I think standums sure. have replaced conversations about culture. Like I think that there's nothing yes. wrong with wanting to like run a hip hop blog or a hip hop sure. page where you're just talking. I mean, provided, you know, there's, that's a whole nother tangent about how those have become very gossip driven and very sensationalist. Yeah. But even that is like also a product of capitalism, just like individualism, because it's like, what can I do to get the most eyes? Oh, the craziest, most salacious 
ambitious thing will, you know, help me build my Instagram page. And now I can run ads on my Instagram page. Right, exactly, right. The more eyes I get, you know, the more ads I can run. So it's tough. It's like, it's. I think it's a mix of all these things. But I think like one of the the foundational things looks to be like the relationship between like individualism and like capitalism and trying to create an identity for yourself in the midst of both of those things and all Mm. the things that make you human. Mm. God, that's so fascinating. And it also makes me think of like kind of the next layer of this that I want to unpack with you a little bit, which is how this has all affected the way that we or that lots of people are interacting with pop and hip hop and contemporary music. And also the way that that has in turn affected the way that perhaps these artists approach their art. Because, you know, we were talking about bubbles and the way that this exists. And there was an incredible, I thought, and I will link it in the show notes, TikTok by a writer and actor named Ryan Ken. And they were just discussing how it is a really uninteresting way to interact with music. That standing essentially is like a very flattened way to access and to respond to art because what standing essentially demands of you is that you turn off your individualism i mean that's why i feel like it's connected to what you were saying just now standing to me is such an unappealing mode for engaging with art and media and for a lot of reasons but i think the primary one is that it's a relinquishing of your own standards as an appreciator of art It's not even about a love for the art form or craft itself. It's about worship of an individual. It's about letting one artist be your standard entirely, that whatever they do, you will worship. And I think that that's really uncritical. And to me, it's just, it's not something I resonate with at all. I feel like the difference between a stan and a fan is a fan is somebody that like has an affinity towards an artist and likes an artist, but like also values their own self and point of view and perspective above all else, which like, in my opinion, we should all value ourselves enough to like put ourselves first, right? So a stan, it feels like to me, and this is sort of like, very much personified or representative of the Hiss versus Bigfoot thing, which is like, if you look at the reaction to Bigfoot, it's like pretty much everybody outside of this barbs was having some sort of critical discourse around Bigfoot. And then you go into the barb world and it's like, if you were a Martian and you landed in a community of barbs online, you would think that Bigfoot was like the greatest achievement in human art in history, right? So I guess my question for you is like, just kind of going off of what Ryan said, and their points about like how this has all impacted the way that we interact with pop and pop stars. Like what do we lose as standum culture has like impacted the way that we discourse about pop music? Yeah, I think that I love Ryan Ken. First of all, I think that their work as like a writer, I think they were a writer on John Oliver's show and I love yes. their TikToks and stuff. Oh my God, I yes. think that they're brilliant. And they have such good yes. social commentary through comedy in their work. Yes. And I think that like we lose the ability to do that to like zoom out and be like, what about the world am I seeing reflected in this person's art? And not just like, what does it matter to them because I care about them? Because that allows you to be a little bit more critical. Like even Ice Spice did this interview that like the music journalists love where she was like, I like reviews and like critics because like that's how I, like I know that they actually care about the work. So I can take that outside of the Stan Wars and like someone who's a fan of Lotto shitting on my album versus somebody who like maybe likes Lotto, but also likes me or maybe doesn't like 
either of us and has a particular critique or observation on my work that I can take or leave based on how valid I think that it is. It's a shame that the phenomenon of like critiqueless fandom or standum is also occurring side by side with like the decimation of entertainment journalism and criticism, right? right? Like we've seen so many layoffs and so much pulling back in the entertainment journalism space. And it's like, these are people who, if they are doing their job well, like writers that I love and grew up as a writer under at Pitchfork um, or at the LA Times, you know, like people who, if they're doing their job well are really uncovering the layers of this work and why why it matters and when it's a pot like a useful reflection of something and when it's not or even if it just sounds good or bad you know even right. if, even just in the context of art for art's sake right. i think that's kind of what we lose and i think that artists lose an avenue for development you know yes. like if you can't yes. decipher critiques from people who hate you because they love someone absolutely who hates you versus critiques from people who just like have something valid to contribute based on this art that you put in the world a hundred percent i think linking it to the decimation of critical journalism is so important. I just feel like there's less and less true, open, free, well-reasoned music criticism because... A, and I mean, I'm sure you experience this. You work for a major music publication. Like, I think there's widespread fear, understandably, from what we were speaking about earlier, about like even if you are the type of critic or you are working for a type of publication that is willing to do music criticism, to say anything because A, there's fear of stands. B, the way that stand culture has proliferated on the internet makes it so that like the artists in tandem with their stand armies have so much power. Like legacy institutions, you know, need access to major pop stars in many instances. And it's very easy for a major pop star to go, well, you know, you gave me a bad review. And why would I need you? I exist online. I have an army of people I communicate directly with. There was a time period before the internet existed where it was like, no matter what the New York Times said about Madonna or whatever, like she'd probably need to do a profile in the New York Times to get her album promoted. So like that doesn't really exist anymore. And instead what you have is people like Lizzo and people like Halsey, like literally directly sinking fans on Pitchfork, you know, or whatever it is. So there's a fascist element to it in my mind because I think what it does is, it, and and pop stars are participating in this with their fans. And I do think this is maybe, again, we, we can debate their responsibilities directly, but I do think any pop star that really values actual individualism, as you were talking about, and like wants their fans to actually be empowered, right? Like so much, I, that's something I think about all the time is like these messages of empowerment. Like how big of an aspect is that of pop stardom in general? Like how many pop stars would claim that their message to their fans is to be empowered and to like find your own voice. But at the same time, the very nature of standing is a decimation of your own voice. It's essentially asking you, and I'm not saying the pop stars themselves are asking you this, but the culture of standing and what standing demands of you is asking you to have no opinion, to have no feelings, to have no, you know, beyond just sort of blind affiliation to the party line of the situation. And like, that is a really disturbing demand to be putting on a group of young people. It's a very upsetting and like probably has wider implications in terms of how everybody's functioning in our democracy, in the context of politics. Like in my opinion, we should be 
valuing our own selves and our own ability to react to our own feelings and react to our own tastes organically, freely, and explore that for ourselves. First and foremost, like this is a very important part of being a human and of being alive. And I feel that through these cultures, which again, I'm not trying to like, they have aspects of them that I think are positive and that I feel like have had a positive community building effects, have helped people feel seen in certain ways, whatever. But I do think we have lost the ability to like just talk about art and like have a fun debate about art, which is like what we should be doing. Like I can't count the amount of times like I've sent a tweet out about an artist that I like for the most part. That's like quite having a question, raising a question about what something they've done recently. And it's like the amount of people that will just jump on the tweet and just be like, you're wrong. Da -da -da -da. This is da -da -da. I'm like, what's the fun in this? Like, why do you just want to get validated and fed a party line about somebody? What is that? You know, and I think that that's there's a tragedy inherent in that. And it's something we should have an eye on as a culture, in my opinion. And that is also, I think, connected to the, the platforms on which we're having these conversations. Like right. my boyfriend, for example, noticed that around the time Elon took over Twitter, he started seeing fight like physical fight videos on his right. timeline more when it was never right. really something he was like super interested in like there was yes. just so much more aggression and it's like i i fear that these algorithms are prioritizing aggression yes. they're not prioritizing right. like civil debate around a, a, a cultural relic or yes. happening it's like when yes. people are combative when they're calling other people stupid when they're tearing other people down and in, in either in the names of someone they stand or just as like because it's a stranger like you said earlier and and the, yeah. it dehumanizes the person on the other side of the yes. conversation. Like I think that yes. it's, it's like the standum is like a symptom of so many other things. Part of that For being sure. like the what algorithms seem to prioritize. I was thinking about that as you were talking because it's just like why is it that even when people are raising critiques from like a pretty innocent place, it can go really ugly. And it's like I and I think also when like you know you would kind of mention that like there is sometimes a like a journalistic fear of stand bases, and it's like I think that there was a moment in time where there. Was was a lot of that yeah and it's like i've been harassed by nikki fans for something that i've written yeah. but i think that right now i think my colleagues are really brave yes, i look at people sure. telling the truth and then also yes. their truth which are sometimes yes. you know there's a little bit of gray area between those two things but like yes. primarily being able to be like these are the facts and this is how i feel about them i think one because it's important and i think just like politically yes. we're in an era yes. you know in a time of like multiple genocides in the time of like someone who tried to overthrow an election <laughs> trying Literally. to be president again like yes. the stakes yes. of not telling the truth are higher yes. and higher and it's like even if we're Absolutely. talking about something as somewhat inconsequential as a rap beef between Nicki Minaj and Megan the Stallion like the principles yes. matter like the print like being yes. able to like stand on your own two feet with your opinion and it is easier though I will say when someone is blatantly wild like I think that we mm -hmm. the reason that there's been a lot more critique because it's like for example when I wrote about the re-release of Be Me Up Scotty by Nicki Minaj. It's one of her first seminal mixtapes on yes. streaming platforms. It was a little bit after, you know, there had been reports that Nicki and associates were harassing and associates of her husband were potentially harassing her husband's victim. And so it's mm. like, you know, even at that time, that was 2021. And at that time mm. I was able to be like, there are these things that are happening inside and outside of rap that are fucking with Nicki's very incredible, very important legacy. And yes, I had to exactly. lock my Twitter and lock my yes. Instagram. And there weren't a lot yes. of people raising that on popular platforms at the time. But I do 
think you see more of the critique now because it's involved such a huge star in Megan Thee Stallion and because it's yeah. like the song was so bad to so many like it wasn't worth it like I've seen so many critiques that like if the song was good we probably would be having a different conversation for sure you know I know that was that was kind of the last question I wanted to ask you is like you know just bringing this all back to the beginning of our conversation like what are we missing in this rap beef and like that's something that honestly is a kind of tried and true sort of trope of rap music that's yeah. created a lot of great art in the past. I mean, I remember living through the, you know, the ether takeover, mm-hmm. you know, moment. Like, mm-hmm. the, it was great. I mean, of course, it was, like, harsh and mean-spirited yeah, in like, some ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say mine is 50 Cent and Ja Rule. I was a kid yeah, for that. Right, like, like Wangsta? Great right. right song. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Like, when 50 Cent, like, literally ended Ja career we lose so much like and we lose the fact i think that ultimately like my last point i want to make is that like hiss is a really great song and like a really incredible display of like what makes megan the stallion like a really exciting artist and like an incredibly dexterous and fun rapper and like sharp and i think as ryan pointed out in their tiktok video which i again will link here like is a like excavation like there's a gospel element to hiss like there's a feeling of sort of like clearing the air of like of of like you know freeing yourself of unencumberedness that like is really important for an artist who's like obviously been through a fuck of shit mm-hmm. and it's a true sort of expression of the reset uh, a, a personal reset you know so it's weird like a really moving song in some ways like Megan Thee Stallion someone you really want to root for and I think this song mm-hmm. gives you like a avenue to do so in a way Absolutely. that like is very exciting and like makes me has made me re-interested and re-excited about like the future of Megan Thee Stallion's music mm-hmm. and like I feel like we're not talking enough about that part of it like it, mm-hmm. it, even as this song debuts at number one this week like we're all wrapped up in like this kind of bullshit that's <laughs> like that's been driven by this discourse you know what I mean yeah and that's why I'm, I'm happy that like it panned out in accordance with the quality of the music like there is a reason yes. that Hiss I think yeah. is number one and Bigfoot is 23 because like right. Bigfoot was rode on the back of sensationalism whereas yes, like when 100%. I first heard I remember it's like one of those moments where like I love the moments with music where you remember where you were and what you were doing like I was yes. in my cousin's studio apartment in Williamsburg, sitting on his yes. pullout couch, like, yes. oh shit, ne- Megan released the song, watched the lyric video, and it's like everything around the song has been quality. The lyric video is beautiful. Yes. The actual yes. theatrical music video, gorgeous. Yes. A really artistic yes. way to play with like horror tropes and like yes. sci-fi tropes that we know that she's yes. interested in. And then also like as a fan from 2017, Megan, yeah. you know, like yeah. there's no hook on the song. It's just yes. rapping like it made me go yes. and listen to some of like my favorite Megan songs over the years this summer yes. and it's like you know when you listen to cocky as fuck in like 2018 off of Tina Snow you're like yeah this is really good like I love this yeah. but when you can see yeah. the trajectory of it five years six years later and hit yeah. us and like wow this girl has been building something something yes. really incredible for like such a long time and it's yes. like the seeds yes. of it were always there and now it's sprouting especially yes. after Cobra which I I loved as like an artistic state but not as a song yes. like I, I've, right. I've never wanted to put that song back on but right. like Hiss is just like fun to listen to and yes. that's why I also think it's really important that like all of this commotion about beef it's like about literally t- like a line the most of the song mm-hmm. has yeah, nothing right. to do with that lady <laughs> it's so true you know yeah, it's, yeah. it's it, it yeah. is like you kind of have said it it, it is a, a funeral for all the crazy shit that she had had to go through as a victim of very real violence, which is another thing that has really complicated this rap beef is because the thing that has been thrown in her face 
is yes. the violence she faced yes. and 100%. the choices she made or di didn't make around it. But yeah, I mean, it's a great song. I'm super excited because yeah. part of me was saying like to myself, like, you know, if Megan wanted to take a year off, like two years off post trial, yeah. Yeah. that would make sense to me. And I would get that. Yeah. But now yeah. I'm like super excited that she didn't yes. feel that way and that she's yes. like, nah, you know, like Megan Thee Stallion's yeah. got something to say. And if it's yeah. going to sound like hiss or being like the vein of hiss like yes. i'm really looking forward to what that'll be like me too and also i think she's done a really nice job over the last couple of weeks like keeping it about hiss like she's really she hasn't taken the bait and she's really just like let the song speak for itself and like that's been a really effective strategy so i feel like we have no choice here but to go out on megan the stallion's hiss Absolutely. anything else would be sacrilegious at this point i loved this conversation monka bird thank you so much for being on the show thank you for asking me this was really great really great talking to you it really was honestly there's so much here this topic is like it needs to be like its own literal podcast like full oh my on God. podcast you know if you want to make a little side quest podcast <laughs> <laughs> I'm honestly interested nigga ain't you here I ain't scared of dick any man go against me I handle shit I'm a Teflon Don in the courtroom they be throwing that dirt don't shit stick all these little rap niggas so fraud Xanax be they hardest bars these niggas hate on BBL and be walking around with the same scars real curvy no edging niggas fight to get in my section don't speak on my body count if the dick ain't worth coming back for seconds cosplay gangsters fake ass accents